In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. have indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson this week on the show we talk with artist glenn kano about his latest installation a forest for the trees a spectacular piece that's here in los angeles and is being brought to us all by the venerable magazine the atlantic and immersive art presenters super below a meditation on climate change and the role that Native Americans traditionally took in land management before their way of life was literally outlawed. A forest for the trees is a stunner. And if you're remotely within the Southern California region, I want you to stop what you're doing right now and make plans to catch this. Go ahead, pause the track. We'll be here. All right, more on my take on the show at the end of the show. We also have Aaron Brindley and Terry Podgorski, co-executive directors of Cafe Nordo in Seattle, joining us to talk about their return to live shows with Down the Rabbit Hole at Nordo's Knife Room. Learn all about Nordo's approach to melding dining with immersive in this episode. But first, I've got your headlines. Meow Wolf has announced that they're headed to the Lone Star State with not one but two new venues, one in Dallas-Fort Worth area, where they will reclaim the space of a former big box retail store at the Grapevine Mills Mall in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We love to see reclaimed mall spaces. That is on track for 2023. 2024 is the projected date for the opening of Meow Wolf's fifth permanent exhibition in the Fifth Ward of Houston. As you might know, Houston is the fourth largest metro region in the country after New York, LA, and Chicago, making this the largest city that Meow Wolf will have opened up in. Big moves for the company after pulling back plans in Washington, D.C. and Phoenix, and you can track the project at texasportals.com. Meta gave a sneak preview of their mixed reality offerings on Thursday, with Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg showing off a new MR experience called The World Beyond, which features a virtual pet with full-color pass-through technology. The demo showed what Mark was seeing, but blurred out the new high-end headset that allows for full-color pass-through, which is codenamed Project Cambria. No word on where or when Project Coheed will appear. In a quarterly investors meeting, Disney CEO Bob Chapek announced some news about Galactic Star Cruiser. What? You thought we weren't going to get through the news without talking Star Wars? Not on my watch, Nerf Herder. That news is the two-night immersive adventure is 100% booked out for the summer. A big validation for the team as word of mouth has overwhelmed speculation, YouTube hooliganism, and the big sticker price to get travelers excited for the most elaborate immersive experience currently on world. We hear that Chandrilla Starlines investor and CEO of Onaka Transport Solutions, Hondo Onaka, celebrated the news by stealing three containers of coaxium instead of his usual two. And while those are your headlines, they're not all the announcements. This week started two, we, oh we, us, we did this thing. We started two new features on our sister site, Everything Immersive. On Wednesdays each week, Chris Woolman will bring you Trailheads, a roundup of the new events, shows, and experiences that the community and our staff is buzzing about. And Rachel Walker has started a recurring feature on Immersive Getaways, wherein she digs up immersive travel options for those of you looking to do your adventuring on the road. This is all thanks to the volunteer drive that we had last month, and you'll see and hear more about that next week. Finally, if you are in L.A. this weekend, Sunday is your only chance to catch the showcase of the Los Angeles Immersive Invitational, which is being produced by After Hours Theater Company. Eight teams, including folks from Rogue Artists Ensemble, the Speakeasy Society, Spy Brunch, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and creators who have worked on the Bridgerton Experience, E3W's In Another Room, and other great stuff, amongst others, 
we'll be creating brand new immersive work and then sharing it with the world as part of this 48 hour challenge. I'm excited to see what gets cooked up. The preview and showcase tickets for Sunday, May 15th are on sale now, and there's a limited supply, so you'll want to act fast. Uh, it's it's dwindling, so go get them. Like, it's, it's more than halfway sold out. The Invitational really is unlike any other event, and it's an opportunity for you to catch immersive work at the very spark of the creative process. You can find links in the show notes, and I hope to see you there. NoPro is brought to you by the generous support of our Patreon backers. Our latest two are Barry Raphael and Andrew Losowski. We are currently standing at 368 backers and $2,316 a month. That's, that's, that's what I make for a living. You, you, you all get to see. Anyway, uh, this month we want to move up to 375 backers. So we're looking for just seven new backers by the end of the month at the $5 or more level to keep us on track and to keep this show going throughout this year and beyond. Uh, we are completely community funded. We thank everyone who helps us out. And uh, you know what? I'll shout out the sustaining backers right now as opposed to the end of the show. They are Ari Hurstan, Chris Woolman. Eric Shamlin, yeah, Chris Woolman, who's also writing for us. Like, this is how much people love us. Uh, it, it scares me sometimes. Eric Shamlin, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, David Bassick, Lonnie Hanson, Mark Baltazar, Sydney Guller, Gil, ugh, Sydney Guillory, sorry, Sydney, and Jan Budman. I just stumble through these things sometimes. We all know that. That's who is helping us out each and every week, every month. And I'm so thankful for you. All right, now let's get on with this show, with this interview with Glenn, with the Cafe Nordo folks. Uh, this interview with Glenn, uh, it's a fantastic piece and it's a fantastic interview. Uh, I don't want to waste any more time. Here we go. Today you find us uh, just east of the Los Angeles River at Ace Mission Studios, where a forest for the trees is currently installed. And we're talking with artist Glenn Kino, who leads the team that's put this absolutely beautiful piece together. Uh, just a stunning work that really, when, when people talk about immersive art installations, you know, like pop-ups and this and that, not to put anything down to those, but this is immersive and it's art and it's an installation. It, it hits all of it uh, and brings in parts of LA local and California history and just, just, I'm over the moon. I'm here with Laura as well. Laura Hess, our arts editor. Glenn, um, this piece is very fractal in nature and I want to get into that, but how would you describe this in general and then and then yeah let's start with that how do you talk about this piece when you talk to someone who doesn't know what the hell's going on in the world well i think for people first of all thank you uh i'm such a big fan uh i'm really excited to be here uh and and i think that when, when we talk to people um you know we we, it, we talk about it being a forest of stories and and you know really it's both a story and a story about telling a story you know because because what we're trying to do is um engage you know, an audience as collaborators, you know, bringing forth um, you know, multi-year process that we went through to to learn and um, you know uh, work and you know create create these artworks. Um, but but uh, this is just the beginning, um, and we envision the work as a platform uh, for the community to come in and contribute stories and evolve the forest and and um, you know as as time goes by. So we're really excited to be here. So when people come in. What I love about this piece is that it's not just, hey, we're going to dump you into a few installations. There is an arc here of a, a pre-show area where you gather everyone, you tell a story and ground everyone into um, in, into the reality of the way that forests, specifically in California, used to be managed by the First Nations, the, the Native folks. Uh, and how that was outlawed, which has probably contributed to all of the problems we have in this particular state, and then release the audience out into uh, a forest and, and, and a few stations in there that culminates in a piece 
that is very specific to Los Angeles, uh, uh, where you've rescued uh, uh, you know, the remains of, of the Oliveira fig, which fell as part of a storm, has now been resurrected here. Um, there's so much going on here. This piece, as I said at the, in my spiel, is sort of fractal in nature. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, what's your what's your angle of attack here? Like, like when when you when you think about the first thought about this piece is uh, the 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 sort of the, the motivating essence, or you're in storytelling terms, the inciting incident. What, what would you what would you put your thumb on? I'd say from a um well, let's see. The whole the whole point in in, in um, creating the forest was to create a collage of storytelling in a way. Um, but but I'd say certainly the inciting incident and the the, the the initial provocation, you know, is this base ground level setting of a story of a jump ceremony that the Kaduk tribe in Northern California um, generously allowed us to tell. You know, uh, in this manner for the first time, um, the script was actually co-authored by myself and Bill Tripp, who's the head of Department of Natural Resources of the Kaduk Tribe, and it was really exciting um, for for us to be able to to uh, be able to tell that, um, and then for them to um, allow you know our narrator Jesse Williams to be the voice, you know, which is also again in a very important um, uh, part of, of of that process. Um, you know, as you said, that that story um, is grounds, you know, an understanding that what would be otherwise considered mythologies, you know, as being real science. And so, you know, it, it, we've been talking about we've been using this word also like decolonizing in real time. And someone asked me what that meant. And, and, and it means, you know, even for us, our team, which is very heterogeneous, we've got, you know, men, women, native, non-native, black, white, Latino, you know, it, it was a, a amazing, you know, um, team you know we're all learning from each other and learning in real time and you know we were sitting in the, in the with the with the Kaduk elders and he says this is not this is not mythology you know this is not just our creation stories and so what we're starting in the, the, the show starts with actually um, a juxtaposition of how a ceremony is ta- talked about uh, from a mythological sense but then showing that it is specifically grounded in actual science that is actually 4,000 years old. So talk about beta testing a process. This is a 4,000-year-old methodology of forest stewardship that was outlawed in 1911 with the Weeks Act uh, and, and then uh, come to find out that our forest now is filled with highly flammable 110-year-old trees. Wow, I wonder if there's a cause and effect there. <laughs> you know, in, in fact, the forest before you know, the Weeks Act were heterogeneous. They were like uh, fire-resistant trees growing right next to some fire susceptible trees you know so that the natural course of lightning strikes you know managed forest con- uh, fires naturally you know because uh native stewardship and codex stewardship uh and now if you look out and you see these beautiful what quote-unquote beautiful douglas firs that's all 110 year old lumber yeah. uh, that is now overgrown and is causing all these catastrophic fires in a way so um yeah so that that's the inciting incident and then what we try to do is take people through a transformative portal and then allow them to um, engage us and engage the stories in the forest with their own agency. Because a lot of, I think, what the opportunity for immersive or experiential art is, is to have people um, contribute their own imagination, like the agency of imagination. Like, I want to walk here and I want to engage in this way. I want to learn about this. And as opposed to, as you know, you know, um, conventional, you know, uh, uh, f- you know, theater, you know, and, and, and other linear narratives, which are all fine and good when they're done transcendently, uh, but are also very structured and don't allow the audience much uh, chance to, to, to come back into it. And so we, we start with that provocation, let people wander. Um, and then what we have done is offered many hours of material, you know, in the space for you to, to, to engage with. It, it feels like a dark irony that we've gone from forest stewardship by the Kodak and other native folks to forest stewardship by PG and E, which of yeah. course is caused, you know, part of the artist statement that you talked about the red skies yeah. uh, a few years ago, you know, being part of the, the origin story here. Um, I know Laura's got a question about how it, how it all came together. Cause Laura, you, you went, well, I'll let you take the mic. I'm actually, I'm going to, um, I'm going to switch gears for a second. What um, Noah was going to reference was Glenn's beautiful show at uh, Compound Long Beach, 
which was called Tide Pools, and it was an incredible mix of science and magic and the natural world. And so, um, I mean, please do jump in about that, but I'm also going to lob a really big question your way, which I'm gonna try to pack into, and maybe I'm biting off a little bit more than certainly I can chew, but there is, especially since you're just talking about the power and the specific kind of engagement that immersive art can deliver and can bring people into, the levels of social impact for this specific work, the, as you're saying, the diverse team, the ethical, the sustainable practices that went into the collaborative process and the actual development around the physical process, the physical installation. So I guess I want to lo like lob over to you, how can I think this is the future of immersive? That social impact is interwoven from the beginning around what we're going to deliver for audiences, how they can be a part of this. Can you talk a little bit more about how did all of that come together? Because you've accomplished so much with this project and yet, and I think there's such a future for this to be integrated very seamlessly, but it's also an incredibly difficult thing to do. How can we make that easier and or like how specifically did you and the team do that? Just a simple question. Yeah. <laughs> no, no major. Big questions. No, but they're, they're actually, uh, thank you for that question. Um, uh, what we've been trying to do, well, uh, let me break that down. There's a lot of sub questions in that question. You know, I think one, one thing that um, I think that the role of the artist and the opportunity of art has is to show people pathways for things that otherwise have not yet existed. Uh, and so one way of uh, hopefully inspiring people who come see the show and other creators to think about is is to, to understand that it, it, something's possible. Because um, if you don't know it's possible, you know, it, 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 for, for all intents, you have not thought of it yet. And, and it's a group of us that are thinking about it. And um, I've said that a lot. I've, I, I've used that in the beginning of one of my films, Withdrawn Arms, and you show a picture of Michael Jordan dunking for the free throw line or a man on the moon or President Obama in the Oval Office. And you say, you know, before I see these things, you don't even think they're possible. So there's, there's, I believe art, you know, ha has also the ability to do that. You know, for this, we, we have a, a distinct process that I think is not unique to the studio, but something that I, I very rigorously um, consider, which is when, I, when we started this work, um, there are three vertical axes of production that we think about, and, and from day one, and 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 when I describe them, you'll 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 it'll make sense hopefully, but you also see how other um, productions, other artists, maybe have them in sequential order where they think about things in, in a different order as opposed to for me the, the importance was to engage from the beginning so one uh, was art we needed to make sure that the art was great and that the art functioned in the world of art from the opportunities and 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 scale and and and, and caliber and level that i have access to and i'm grateful to be a part of um, and then but there's also show you know the next one is show it's got to be a good show you know, and you know from my work with Derek on in and of itself and everything else, like, you know, when I say we want to make a great show, we don't take that lightly, right? And then, and then three, it's scholarship and, and, and intention, activism, you know, whatever word we want to use for that, but we use scholarship and intention, you know, and so from, 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 from the ground up, right? And, you know, and so that's action, you know, that's being part of social issues. And so, you know, all, so what we did was our team, we created, you know, we built team leaders for each of those um, verticals that allowed this organic process of development to happen across all three. So advanced Garrett, who has a long history in the, you know, obviously immersive interactive space, you know, he was our lead for the show. You know, Londi was our lead um, for the scholarship. Um, and myself and Gideon Webster from our studio, who's our lead fabricator, was our lead in, in the art, you know, process. And, you know, and, and so then what we did is we built teams around all those processes and, coordinated and collaborated across the whole you know development of the show from beginning to end to make sure that when we were finding a discovery you know in art that that inspiration channeled all the way through a show experience it channeled all the way through an opportunity for engagement with the public scholarship wise and vice versa and that you know when we learn something great from the tribe you know how did that ripple effect ins inspire moments to do this and then um, and then all i did was just call 
everyone I've ever worked with uh, to try to give me notes and feedback, uh, kill me on it, tell me how to make it better <laughs> and what we want to do. And so there's nothing like getting notes from um, the world of theater, the world of magic, the world of immersive, the world of art, uh, every writer, you know, that we've worked with. And uh, so it's been a, it's been a, a fantastic journey there, too. So. There's, there's, you can tell who the theater people are by who can find their light and who can't. And I, and I saw Hilarious. you, I saw you today, like finding your light when no one else was. And I was like, oh, oh you, yeah, that's in his bones. <laughs> exactly. Um, there's a lot of not just not, not just your system of support in terms of the creation and, and the feedback on that, but there's also there's a there's a financial system of support and a marketing system of support here. There's some heavy hitters coming through here. You got you got Mastercard of all things, but you also have the Atlantic and you have Super Blue. And I'm wondering, um, how does this all fit together? You know, like because this is at least for Los Angeles, I think this is the 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 in, at least for a long time the biggest confluence of these sorts of forces. And Super Blue is like a name that a lot of us know in the immersive world, but this is their first LA event. The Atlantic, which is you know the magazine uh long long history and and you know history as as we were reminded of today traces back to john muir and emerson and it has a real real history with these exact issues um you know i know they put some of this in motion but also you've been you're working as sort of like the the avatar of these giant forces that are wrestling with these 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 things like does that lead to pressure? Does it lead to joy? Does it lead to... This is not a question. This no, is, no. It's, this look, is like, this I know where you're going. I, I can answer that question. I Go mean, for it. You know, it, it, and fortunately, uh, I, I'd say... Um, uh, yeah, so just by way of background, this project started with the Atlantic provoking Super Blue and partnering up with them. And, you know, I've been working with Super Blue and trying to figure out a project and they called me and we were off to the races. You know, from a sponsorship corporate perspective, though, one of the things is that, like unlike other types of projects of this nature you know i'm i made it clear our team made it clear from the get-go that we were going to approach this as a show that we were going to make we, ex we we expressed what we knew at the time which is changing about uh, you know not changing but what has changed and evolved but even at the time we knew that there were going to be ethical boundaries um ethical uh, guardrails um from which uh we could not be um uh, mess with, you know, and, and I think that one one thing that I have the um, uh, uh, very heterogeneous, diverse background to understand how to do is to really um, speak truth to power and straight sp in, in different spaces, and so you know it's 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 uh, it, but it's been a, a very pretty clear road, and and we've had only support actually from all three partners, um, which which. You know, I actually have. I, I we anticipated more pressure than we <laughs> thought. You know, because because you think like, oh, he's like big corporate people. And, 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 and but when you start off, and we say like, leave me alone. And then and then and part of like the terms of like, if you want me to do this, you're gonna have to leave me alone and um, trust me. And and uh, somehow they, they trusted me. Uh, and and uh, it works. So there you go. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, there's other people who want to talk to you, and, and you've been very generous and offered us to swing by uh, and putting this on the podcast. We will take up that offer. We will be we will yeah. swing by. 100%. Um, I would be disappointed if you don't swing by. Oh, well, then we're going to talk. I'm going to go that way. You know, I'm going to okay. be like, what I'll, is going I'll make, on? I'll make sure Vance connects me with your okay, information exactly. directly. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I guess they weren't a fan. I mean, uh, okay, don't do it. No, we're going to do this. Okay. If you want California to be terrible, then sure, guys, don't come over. <laughs> <laughs> um... Oh my goodness! Uh, I would have done that too. Um, you tell a story about your favorite magic trick, yeah. or that you you did as, as yeah. part of today's. And I wonder if you could share. Could you share yeah, that with, with with the with the listeners here? Yeah, That's absolutely. So In the end of the show, there's a um, a large scale sculpture created from a tree that has a cubic apparatus hanging around in place of what would otherwise be leaves. And over the course of the performance, they, they are transparent, but then they illuminate um, in, in, in almost digital looking cubes. And, and, and we like to say it's sort of Minecraft thinking uh, <laughs> and, and, and it resurrects the tree symbolically. And um, at, the, at the top of that piece, what I like to say is it, I, I recall the story of once, um, well, early, as you said, of my, my favorite magic trick, which is uh, where a magician um, will tear up a newspaper into really, really tiny pieces and then magically restore it right in front of your eyes. And it's this beautiful, highly visual, uh, breathtaking piece. Uh, and then and, and, and years back, I'll tell you guys, uh, the magician Max Maven asked me 
he goes, you know, what's your favorite piece? And, and Max actually is the voice of the bristlecone pine here. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so Max Maven says to me, he's, you know, asked me, you know, what's your favorite trick? And I, I said, you know, it's the Turner Store newspaper. And he says, why? And I said, because it's very visual, I think. He says, that's not why. I said, well, I said, okay. And he says, that piece is about resurrection. That piece is about hope. You know, it's about the stubborn belief that even if you see something torn and destroyed in front of your eyes, there is still an opportunity and a possibility for it to be resurrected. And I was very moved. And he said, that's who you are. And I said, that's, you're, he says, you're the guy that believes that stubbornly that that's possible. And I said, that's true. But I am also um, just one of many. And I think that we're all, we're all uh, believe, we're all believers, you know, in some way that, and we want to, to see something resurrected. And, you know, um, and in this case, the, the, the metaphors, obviously our planet and, you know, our, our ecologies in different ways. But we, we know also that um, things aren't going to be resurrected exactly the way they were. You know, um, even when we talk to the the, the, the the tribal elders, you know, they know that the new f- way forward, because the genocide has been successful, that the new way forward is a hybrid way between new models and old models. And so we call it, old, you know, old methods for new wars Like we're, we're, we're using Minecraft thinking along with old artifacts. And the tree actually is very historically significant for Los Angeles while doing the forest foraging, the lumber foraging for the show for all, all of the lumber is sustainable. Um, we met a, a fellow who pointed out a corner of a lumber yard and he says, Hey, that's a tree that I've been saving for something special. And I was like, what is it? He says, it's actually the remnants of the 104 year old Olivera street fig. Um, as we wait for the, uh, Four street truck to go by. Four street yeah. truck to go by. Um, yeah, it's not the far r- from Olivera. We're on, yeah. basically we're like a mile and a, a half mile away. And half away yeah. yeah, and so it's the 140 year old tree, which is the most significant tree in the history of LA. You know, in this neighborhood at least, um, generations have gotten married and um, eaten taquitos from Cielito Lindo down the street there, and and uh, uh, myself included um, for years since I was a kid. So um, yeah, so we're resurrecting the Olivera Street fig using Minecraft thinking. I love it. Well, Glenn, I'm so glad. This is here, and I know I can tell everyone's like, where's Glenn? So we're going to wrap up, uh, but everyone should make it down here, and and we'll talk again real soon. Thank you. I'll see you all here. Okay, bye-bye. We're breaking format a little bit this week. Uh, The pick of the week is coming up. And uh, for those of you who listened to the most recent Review Crew episode, uh, you will know exactly what the pick of the week is going to be when I tell you that our London curator, Shelley Snyder, and our New England correspondent, Leah Davis, are bringing it to you. So let's get to it. This week's pick of the week, undeniably, indisputably, dun, 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 is Punch Drunk's The Burnt City. Absolutely. Uh, so Punch Drunk... Uh, uh, famous for Sleep No More and The Drowned Man and so much more, uh, recently opened up the Burnt City in Woolwich, 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 London, yep. an area famed for its history of, it's an arsenal, it made munitions, it was the staging of military materials all throughout London's history. So of course this is where you would build a show based on the Siege of Troy. A huge, huge show. We cannot underline how big the space is for this show. <laughs> Leah's been to see it how many times? I've seen it twice, but I've got three more on my radar. I cannot wait. There is still so much more I need to see. Amazing. I've seen it twice myself, once in previews and once in big show, but you've you're just you're seeing it. Well, I mean, you can afford to uh, to wait a little while as you live here. I've traveled across the globe to come see this show and I have to leave on Sunday. Yeah. And that's a good point. This is a show if you have the resources, I mean, this is the immersive event, not just of the season, but arguably one of the decade's top hits. This is the biggest show in London in for eight years it's been since the Drown Man closed. So if you're thinking about um, maybe you're trying to figure out what this whole immersive thing is about, um, we had a whole generation of immersive community members come in through Sleep No More. In fact, Shelly, I think you did. Yep, I think you did as well. I did as well. It was one of my first, um, before retroactively understanding that everything in my life was immersive. (laughs) It was a big joy that I must follow. Yes. Um, But if if you're on the edge, maybe if you haven't, haven't found an immersive show that you liked yet, or maybe maybe regular sitting in your seat theater is not doing it for you and you want to know what else is out there, this is a show you really, really should check out and do it now um, because culturally this could be something huge. Yes. It's booking through December 2022. 
Uh, but we both, we're looking at each other sideways right now because we're both fairly sure it's going to go on long beyond that. Yes, it's, I mean, they've, they've really dug in their heels in Woolwich. They're going to be there for several years. Non-negotiable. Be there and be present. And I, I hope you go. I hope you have a fantastic time. Yeah. Do we have anything else to add? Pick of the week? Nah. Pick of the year. Whoa, that's huge. <laughs> okay, that's a lot. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been Leah Davis, your New England correspondent. And Shelley Snyder, your London curator. For 13 years now, Café Nordo has been producing their brand of dinner theater slash immersive culinary event in Seattle, with up to seven original shows a year making up a season in the before times. After a successful pivot to digital with a side of dessert for those of us not lucky enough to live in Seattle, in the form of their room service program, which started in 2020, the Knife Room at Nordo is back to seating adventurous diners with the return of Down the Rabbit Hole, a Wonderland cabaret, billed as an immersive theatrical ode to Wonderland with pop-up art, fine dining, and after-hours karaoke. Joining us to talk all things Cafe Nordo today are Nordo's co-executive artistic directors, Aaron Bridley. Hello. And Terry Podgorski. Hello. Aaron and Terry, thank you for being on the show. This uh, this has probably been in some ways a long time coming. I think we've both been aware of each other for like seven years now. Uh, so it's it's only the, the pandemic that's led me to like start interviewing people more online. But uh, this is kind of overdue. But I'm excited because you're, you're back in, in, in business and bringing people into the space. But for those who are not so fortunate as to be in Seattle, I keep on harping on this because I really like Seattle. I never get to go there. Uh, or who didn't partake of room service when it popped up. Uh, what is Cafe Nordo? We like to think of ourselves as a full integration of theater, performance, uh, immersive art, and of course, really innovative cuisine. So you get all three when you come to Nordo and, and live original music and, uh, and yeah, that's a, it's a big hybrid. Well, is it also, it's, so it's, it's the performance, it's the food. Uh, you have a, if memory serves, you have a permanent space in Seattle? We actually have two permanent spaces. Yeah. In 2015, we, t- we got our first permanent space down on main street in Seattle and a couple of years later, we expanded into another venue that's down in the basement where our current show is uh, down the rabbit hole. So we have two spaces in the same building that we use for different types of events and performances. So, so how how do the two different spaces? We'll we'll get into the details on on down the rabbit hole in a second. But I but uh, assuage my curiosity. How do the two different spaces work? So I guess it's the knife rooms in the basement and then it's the columbarium is the thing upstairs? Oh, the, the culinarium. Culinarium, culinarium. <laughs> Columbarium's the thing where you bury people. Okay, never mind. <laughs> culinarium. That's the way you can see where my brain works. Yeah, 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 I'm a goth, so you know, see, <laughs> same thing. Um, well, upstairs so, it's more like a large theater space with the lighting grid and we built stages in all different parts of the space. Um, and that's where we have been doing our, what we call our large scale dinner productions. Mm. Um, and then we acquired this venue that is downstairs. It's like, if you if you know Seattle at all, there's this underground level to it where they raised all the streets. And so there are these multiple, especially in the old part of the city, multiple underground little venues or um, uh, hidden gems. And we got our hands on one. And that's where we've been doing, up until now, more like jazz nights and wine tastings and little parties and events like that until this show came around. And it's very much like catacombs down there. But upstairs, mm-hmm. what, we, what we've been doing in our, in our original space is, um, in, uh, oftentimes we think about immersive as you're wandering around. And with our upstairs space, it's more like we transform this space into, for instance, a uh, 1960s Pan Am airplane. And so you are on the flight. The food that's coming out is inspired by what would be served on that Pan Am flight. 
and the show that's happening is a 1960s spy spoof. So that's kind of the immersive upstairs portion of it is like we're really able to completely transform the space into wildly different venues every time we do it. Now downstairs is a little bit more, like I say, like catacombs, like a lot more places to experience more traditional immersive where you are walking around and seeing different, uh, you know, art, art, um, art installations that are all inspired by the show. So a little bit of traversal action in the, in the catacombs down below and then sort of a, a full set dressing. I mean, I, I, I have always been curious cause I haven't gotten a chance to go up and see one of the shows about what sets what y'all do apart from kind of the more traditional dinner theater that people might have experienced or folks who, you know, I, I remember when Teatro Zanzani was a thing and that was up there and also in the Bay Area and, and there's a few other things of that nature. Or are the lines kind of blurry here? I guess what, what makes this immersive as opposed to something that, you know, someone might see in Peoria? I mean, the lines are definitely blurry and we, and we've been going back and forth our entire existence of whether we are dinner theater or not dinner theater or new dinner theater. But the one difference I can say for sure is that like Aaron alluded to, you're in a different world every time and you as an audience member are present and have a role in the story. Mm. You are not just hidden behind a fourth wall and in the darkness and then food lands on your plate. We try and with the serving staff and with every element, make sure that you know, you're in the story, you're in the room with the actors. You're not invisible. You're a passenger on the Pan Am flight, or you are a ghost in the haunted hotel or, um, and the other thing that, that separates us from Peoria, <laughs> which I'm so glad you mentioned, because that's like what most people think of when they think of dinner theater is like, you know, watery spaghetti and uh, arsenic or lace, something like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> and for us, we every show that we write is an original show with the food um the, the food integrated. So they're all written in order for the food to weave its way in and out of the story. And then the menus are all created specifically for that story. So for instance, we did a show that uh, took place in, in an attic and it was a little girl who was playing with her dolls and, um, and all of the characters are these spooky dolls, kind of Twilight Zone style. And, um, and all the food looked like candy mm. um, but giant. So you were the size <laughs> of all and all the food is like an actual savory, you know, beautiful five course meal, but it all kind of has a mind bending experience of looking like giant candy. So that's a kind of example of what we've done or like Twin Peaks inspired show. It was all food that looked like diner breakfast food, but was actually a, a five course dinner. I remember when you guys were doing that one and I was so intensely jealous because it was, <laughs> was going to be one. I wanted to like race up and catch. It would have been that one for sure. The mashed sure. potato donut was definitely a, a fan favorite. <laughs> oh my goodness. Was there pie at least at the end? Pie and coffee? You ended on pie and coffee, right? You we know. actually had all of our cocktails inspired by pies. Oh, nice. <laughs> very, very nice. I'll have to get the recipes later. Um, well, and uh, something I have experienced when I've been to like an immersive show and there's been engagement, direct in- address and food, uh, it, can, it can sometimes get like the performances get a little intense sometimes. I remember I, I had a I had a negative experience, not with you guys, obviously, because I haven't been a negative experience with, with, with a pretty skilled immersive theater company, uh, one of my favorites, but they were experimenting with the food side of things and they had like, you know, had like an actor like screeching at us while we were trying to like wolf down the main course and i was kind of like oh my god and there's there's a there's an art to like when things are firing and and getting out to everyone and how that's time to the to the um it's almost like it's orchestration i wonder if you could talk a little bit about bringing all those pieces together and then and then we'll get down into into down the road well, uh, that has been one of the more interesting challenges. We definitely have had to shy away from some subject matter that we would otherwise love to do, like like really, you know, intensely sad stuff people don't really want to eat dinner to and 
horror, although we have had one, a couple of fairly successful, scary things, but you can't really get too graphic and you do have to give people their space. We really kind of pride ourselves on surprising people with how well taken care of they are. That's a mm. huge part of what we do is service. And so despite the fact that they might be in this um, scary, creepy doll environment and all their servers are dressed up like scary, creepy dolls, um, we want them to know we've got them taken care of. Their dietary restrictions will be cared for. We are in touch with them about their experience all the way through. And then, of course, the dance with the kitchen is, you know, we always say we get we we work on a show, we build a show, we rehearse a show. And then the diva shows up, which is the food. <laughs> so every, you know, the first couple shows um, now we've got it down to a pretty much a science, but we used to have to do a, a week of previews in order to kind of really dial that, um, that food timing in. So we have to time the show, time the plating, and then get those things to sync up perfectly. So everyone's getting their food like hot and beautiful, because that's the other thing that I think separates us from Peoria is the food's awesome. If I do this on myself. <laughs> so, um, so we really want to make sure that it's like at its peak when it's getting to people's tables and then, and then we give them space. And that's one of the things that we, um, that people really enjoy is we give them time to talk to each other at their tables. Um, so there usually is a little bit of a dining break in between. Yeah. I remember the, the brownie thing with the, the candy glass shards, I, that's how I think of them, uh, that came with one of the room service pieces uh, yeah. was was so good. And I I, okay. I, I keep on wishing I could have more. <laughs> I was like, where can I get more of these? Like all the yes, time. Chocolate chest pie with the little glass, the little jelly crystals. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was a chocolate chest pie, but it was, it, it was a chocolate chest pie, but it was also like one of, I'm a, I'm a chocolate brownie person, and all I could think about was eating that was like this is one of the better chocolate brownies I've had, and it's chest pie, and like and 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 I, I loved it so much. I'm so glad to hear that because definitely shipping food out has been a um a you know a whole nother ball of wax on on how to make sure that things show up really delicious. <laughs> we we might circle back on that, but right now uh, you are back in the knife room. Talk to us about down the rabbit hole. What are the what are the elements all in here? Because I I see cabaret, I see karaoke. I'll ask about that in a second because that's a thing for me. Uh, yeah, w walk us through the show. So the show is a club. We we set out. We were like, we're gonna make a Wonderland inspired club. We've got the right white rabbit as the MC. We've got the Hatter and the Hare and the Queen of Hearts all making appearances. We do the tea party moment just like everybody would want to see in a Alice in Wonderland inspired show, but it is a club. So you're going underground. Um, the characters, we really looked at like uh, European club style fashion for the costumes. We wanted to feel a little gritty, but then completely silly like Alice in Wonderland is like Lewis Carroll's best stuff is just off and a little absurd. So an absurd club that is, a karaoke club is where we started from. And then as the show progresses, we, the whole thing is about trying to find Alice to put her on trial. She, some tarts get stolen and she keeps disappearing so that the characters can't find her. The queen of hearts wants to put her on trial. So you have to get up at certain points and walk through these other rooms looking for Alice where you, wander through these art installations, these other parts of Wonderland and get fed little delights along the way. Nice. Little that that's uh that appeals to the Pac-Man fan of me. Right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Through a maze, getting fed treats. You know, um it's like the old joke about raves. Uh you know, like that's where rave culture came from. All the kids raised on Pac-Man. Um <laughs> that's, that sounds that sounds absolutely Absolutely delightful. Uh, yeah, we want you to feel like you're coming in, you're going to have some drinks, you're ready for a Friday night party, and then the story unravels around you, and you get some great great music along the way. How uh, karaoke is a part of this? How, how does it fit into to the whole deal? Well, we just, 
you know, really wanted to, in a, basically, we were looking for the most crowd-pleasing way to emerge from this pandemic. And so we were like, we need some really, like, bring down the house, everyone sings along pop tunes, um, as well as a framework for our incredible composer to compose some songs that sounded like pop tunes that were Lewis Carroll's words. So we have both, you know, go ask Alice, uh, the Jefferson air. Is that what? Nope. It's called white rabbit. By Jefferson airplane, um, which, you know, everyone wants to hear. And then we also have like a pop version of the walrus and the carpenter, the, the poem about eating oysters. And then of course, right after that, the oyster, bread pudding courses served. So that's kind of a way that we're integrating uh, and all of our singers are great. And uh, like I say, our, our composer has done these really wonderful um, renditions of these songs. So as much as anything, it's about this one in particular, we just want everyone to feel such joy and that familiarity of singing man eater along with the white rabbit, <laughs> you know, just having a real pop, poppy good time. You both have a pretty extensive background in theater um, even well before coming together to, to make Nordo, how did you get started in this particular vein? Like what led you to making this really unique theater company? Well, we, we met working on a local avant-garde circus called Circus Contraption that operated out of Seattle for about 12 years. And I was with them about eight years and Aaron joined us for the last three mm-hmm. And that's where we met and started working together. In the circus world, it just opened my eyes and I think Aaron's eyes to just like these huge events and joy and astonishment. Wonder is a big part of it. It's like this wonder of how this could be happening. And we talked about wanting to take that forward with us. And when the circus decided to, um, to stop performing, we decided we wanted to take some of that same energy and go forward with it. And she had a culinary background. I had a short story about this maniacal chef that was doing um, oddball dinners to teach people where their their food came from. And we merged that into our first show and then we haven't looked back. Nice. Yeah, the the first show was... uh... Um, we basically lied to everybody about a fake chef coming into town, wrote press releases and things like that, that he was doing this pop-up and like created this whole mythology. And that's where Nordo comes from. That's our chef, Chef Nordo. And ah. we, we were his banner for a very long time. Um, you know, we had a whole biography for him that was always getting more and more outlandish. And we had these pull quotes from... <laughs> from press that didn't exist. <laughs> like that's how we started was this very cheeky pop-up that was happening in the back of a chocolate factory. Um, and to our the real chocolate factory. Yes. Oh, <laughs> nice. chocolate, yeah. Um, to our, they, they had, been, they were so small at that time that they had this big warehouse that they weren't using. And so we were in the back of a chocolate factory in their warehouse. Now, now it's used for chocolate. Go figure. But, uh, <laughs> that's where we started. And, um, yeah, I had done some integration of food and theater in New York City before I moved back to Seattle. So there was a there was a hair of an idea there. And then Terry had this great short story. And I was like, I think we can convince everyone this guy's real. And and we did for a number of years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then we and then we ended up getting a nice following and wanted our own space where we had our own kitchen because to begin with, we were kind of hauling stuff all over town for every show, which mm. got a little exhausting. And and now here we are. You have the two spaces you've got down the rabbit hole running right now. What's the plan for the rest of 2022? We want to run down the rabbit hole through the year if we can. This is the first time that we've thought about doing a show and giving it a really long run and opening it up to Seattle and just being like, come in, enjoy this thing. And it's all about getting our feet back under us, right? It's like we're trying to run open up is hard enough and then trying to run two venues. So we're trying to like, what's, what can we do that feels good feel and we get some regularity going and then we can look at like how to branch out and do more. Um, Yeah. So we have some plans, but 
it's fluid. Everything's yeah. fluid. <laughs> and I think that part of our experience with the circus, you know, after I have, I, I have been a theater person exclusively until I worked with the circus, which is a totally different brand of entertainment. And the thing that I, I took away from working with the circus is with the theater, you're always trying to do new, a new thing every, you know, however many weeks the thing runs and you shut it down, you do something new. With circus arts, it's like those folks have one act that they do for years and years and years, and they just hone it and perfect it and make it amazing. Um, and so there was something about that that stuck with me. And although we did take more of a traditional theater season-based um, tack pre-pandemic, I think because it was just what we both knew the best or what I yeah. knew the best, I don't know. Um, at this point, we're like, what if instead of doing that, we just invest in this concept and then continue to grow it. So um, starting with the rabbit hole and, and these little wonderful worlds that people can walk through and it's like potentially maybe the next step is to get a, a larger venue where we can have more, uh, more spaces that then add to this show. And so it becomes um, more installations. We even have visions of at some point having a kind of, a museum, a culinary, culinary museum. Like we did this show called the cabinet of curiosities, which was a three story multi floor. Every floor had a couple different rooms that you had a different course in. And, um, although we could not unfortunately take over that building, um, there has definitely been talk about having, you know, kind of a seasonally rotating set of these museum rooms that you go into and have courses that, uh, that could be more permanent. Yeah, I mean, I think you're onto something there with sort of the traditional way that, you know, a theater season goes, um, particularly because, you know, a theater company tends to serve a set community. Um, they want to bring through a number of pieces for that set community, you know, their season ticket holders, for example, but also, you know, they're, they're usually serving a, a region. And yet, you know, the, the ne plus ultra of of theater, whether it's Broadway or, you know, London, are these shows that exist for a very, very long time. And we look at something like Sleep No More, which, you know, had what, like eight or nine years pre-pandemic and now now is back. And they're kind of attractions, yep. a perennial things that people just keep going to and going to and going to. And, and when a show is good enough, you know, they even have like, you know, the touring show, plus it's still, you know, but no, you've got to go see it on Broadway, right? You know, like the Broadway cast, and and immersive. And Meow Wolf is certainly doing that as well. Yeah, well, and Meow Wolf's got the whole. I mean, they're they're like an installation first, and then you know the the narrative side of it. You know, if they're if they're performers in it, that's that's you know a kind of an add on to it. But I I see this this form being a lot more have a lot more in common with entertainment and attractions than with a traditional theater season. Uh, and yet there's still plenty of room for experimentation with a traditional theater season. But a lot of times I'll see a company's work and yeah, it'll be like three weeks into the run and they finally figure out what it is, you know, the show really is. And then like, well, time to close the show down and we put it away and never do it again. And that, that always breaks my heart because yeah. there's so many people who don't get to experience it. Uh, and we and just have so many shows that um, that were starting to sell out as soon as it was time for us to close. You know, yeah. word of mouth finally got out there, and you know, we never were able to to reach audiences because all of our shows were were so different. And we really prided ourselves on that. Like, oh, each one's a totally different experience. But then you have someone go, "I want to see a show like that," and you're like, "Oh, well, that one's not coming back for another two years," you know, or whatever it may be. So, really, kind of investing. And to us, it's a way of communicating with our city a little bit better because mm -hmm. we have something that we can tell them. We've always been kind of Seattle's best kept secret, <laughs> which is not the best thing to be. <laughs> so, um, so getting a chance to have one thing that we can talk about in perpetuity will bring a complete, we're seeing new faces that we've never seen before in our audience right now, which is thrilling. Nice. Nice. Well, and Seattle's got the right mix of stuff, I feel, to like. And I, I know there have been a couple of times when there have been 
more than one company doing immersive and right in 2019 i think witness was doing a show uh they're a new york company but they were out in seattle and they were doing a show and of course you know pandemic blew that up and and there's but there's enough there between you know creative scene the tech scene like there's so many people who make games you know in seattle it's a huge game uh you know city there's there's the right mix in there and um, i'm eager to see what seattle immersive like looks like when it's in full steam again and it is exciting that you have a show that's going to become your backbeat um and and that's that's always a good thing in my mind yeah so we're um we're here with this guy this thing running and then we're looking around the, the landscape and seeing what else we could do what's out there what buildings are open what artists are coming up you know and like you said the games we're very excited to see what is the integration of theater and escape rooms for instance and going down that those ideas where does that take you you know and um and ar like figuring out ways of of having some ar elements in our um in our installations is definitely something on the drawing board too nice yeah. So it is an exciting time to see as things are opening. So, but when you asked about the plans for 2022, 2022 is hard because we're just learning what is possible and it's all a new landscape, but we're excited for like the long view. Great. Well, Aaron and Terry, I want to thank you both. Uh, For those who want to check out down the rabbit hole, where should they go? They should go to cafenordo.com. And that's that. And the N-O-R-D-O. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you both for being on the show. And I'm sure we're going to be talking more in, in the not too distant future. Yeah. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you very much. the show this week and frankly i can't believe that all came in at under an hour we had two great interviews the pick of the week a hefty news segment at the start geez uh sometimes uh we're not too bad at making this thing right um maybe don't tell me if i am anyway uh actually give us some kind of feedback i mean other than anyway so uh iTunes, uh, you can always go uh, review the show. Uh, we, we love a we love a five star review uh, because it, it helps uh, you know and, and write a little something. I'm just saying, you know, if you like the show, if you like it, if you don't, you know, eh, just just warn your friends in the group chat. Okay, um, <laughs> I uh, I am still kind of riding high off of catching a forest for the trees yesterday, um, not just because. It is spectacular, which it is, not just because there's some incredibly smart design going in in terms of the way guests are brought in, uh, how you know, little little grace notes that allow for participation, the way that Glenn borrows from his background designing in magic and, um, you know, in art and in activism and, and kind of weaves it all together. But because... You know, that story Glenn told about his favorite magic trick and uh, what what Max Maven told him that meant about him as a person, it really reads in the piece. And it gives me hope that as we approach these crises, and there's multiple crises going on in in our society right now, that works like this, that the kind of work that is happening in our field can help us see things in a different light, can help us reconnect with hope. I don't, I don't carry around a big bucket of hope. I carry around like a, like a a water bottle worth of hope these days, but I've still got some. And, and my bottle is feeling really full today because of the time I spent at a forest for the trees. And I, I think you're going to experience that as well. And finding that there's a path forward wherein, and one of the things Glenn didn't talk about in 
here that he talked about in his artist statement when when all the press was assembled that there was there's a real um concerted effort to make sure that you know native american first nations people aren't just having their knowledge drained as part of this right that 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 wave of just uh you know taking the ideas and running with it uh, and leaving the folks who stewarded the land for so long out of the equation but there's activists who are at standing rock who are actively part of this project there's a nonprofit they're spinning out of it there's a a, a wave of and not only an educational effort but uh, an effort of solidarity and if we as not just a species but as a people are going to get through the crises that are facing us at a global scale, we have to lean in to our capacity for solidarity, to our capacity to care for each other, to understand each other. I've always felt that the thing that faces us in America in particular, but the world as a whole, is that as we move forward deeper into these futuristic centuries, that we're facing the crisis of becoming a pluralistic society and not really having any models for that, that, that don't look like domination, empire, uh, just boots on necks, um, you democracy and pluralism, you know, sometimes don't feel, they feel like oil and water sometimes. And, and you see that playing out here. Uh, in America in an intense way. And we just can't afford that. We can't afford it. Laguna Niguel burned down in this past, you know, week. I didn't even know that. Uh, Anthony had to point it out to me in our group chat um, that this was going on. Uh, you know, once upon a time, you know, <laughs> my dad was like renting a room, you know, at someone's house in Laguna Niguel, um, which, which sounds fancy, but it, but it wasn't. Um, uh, you know, and, and gone now and, and Laguna Niguel, that's, that's pricey territory burned, gone. Um, those of you in the Bay area and above, you know, what happened when the PG&E fire happened. And, and a lot of this is in response. A lot of, a lot of Glenn's work here is in response to the PG&E fire. All of this is happening in real time. New Mexico's on fire right now, right? All of this happening in real time. Everything all these stressors and, and we're all, we're all coming out of it just drained and at our limits. But I went through a forest for the trees and indeed <laughs> the metaphor is I'm starting to see the bigger picture. I'm starting to see a hope that we can come together, that everything we need to address the crises that we all face right now, it's all here if we can just learn how to see things together. Um, powerful stuff, powerful work. Uh, and and I, I, I hope that e even a fraction of, of what it moved in me uh, gets to move in you. I hope all of it does, but you know, I mean, we're all different. So I don't, I don't expect you to you know, have the exact same outcomes. Don't demand that of you. All right, uh, go check it out. It's here in LA, uh, running through July. There's a lot of great work happening right now. Of course, we talked about Particle Inc., Speed of Dark uh, in Las Vegas last week. Uh, also something that if you're nearby, that, that's actually one that's, that is worth flying out to Vegas for. So that, that, is, that is that level. Um, and indeed, I think the only reason why I don't say that about, say, Forest for the Trees is that I think there's a chance that this may pop up in, in some other spaces uh, at some point down the line. But uh, if you have other reason to be in Los Angeles, uh, please make sure if say you're coming in to check out some friend shows or, uh, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're, you know, passing through, uh, on, you know, on the way to Comic-Con, I guess it doesn't line up. Maybe if it extends, just, you know, do, do your best to catch forests for the trees. Um, it's, it's an important work. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to put these things against each other. Really? You know, if you're, if you have the means to like get around, then again, uh, carbon footprint, <laughs> you know, maybe don't just hop on a plane for everything. Uh, be measured, you know, be measured in what you do. Also hopping on a plane right now. Oh, I know some people, uh, getting sick from planes. Not, not great. Not great. Again, all these crises, if we could just learn to see each other. Oh man. 
it's all here. Uh, to get mystic for a second, uh, uh, in the, uh, and I'm, I'm not particularly religious, but I, I, I love the texts, uh, in the gospel of Thomas, I picked this up from my Joseph Campbell days, uh, in the gospel of Thomas, there's a saying of, of Jesus, and this is a Gnostic gospel. It's like, it is, it is, uh, it is not canonized, hasn't been for a very long time. It's considered heresy. Uh, but there's a saying, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. If, if men would just have eyes to see it thereabouts that's a rough translation or people uh you know um I, I feel that all the time it's always bouncing around in my head and uh and and this work uh has because all the tools of art and entertainment are, are at our disposal in immersive uh it means that there's there's more chances to to help people have the scales fall from their eyes so it's good stuff is that pretentious i don't know am i am i am am i you know, feeling a thing. Cause anyway, uh, good stuff. It's good stuff. Uh, if you are in town, uh, right now here in LA, uh, come through the invitational. Uh, I believe there's still preview tickets. If money's an issue, those are the cheaper ones. Those are like the noon to two run. Uh, you will get a chance to see everything. It'll be a little more raw form. The four o'clock and the seven o'clock shows are still tickets available. Uh, like about uh, a little more than half the stock is gone right now. Uh, we will, we will, we may very well get close to like a, a full sellout because there's, I think it's like every person who's inside manages to you know, get one person to buy a ticket of what's left, then that's everybody. So, uh, you know, act now while you can. Uh, it's, uh, it, is it a little bit of a gamble because, you know, the pieces aren't done? Yeah, but, you know, that's the fun of it all. You don't know what's going to be. Last time, uh, Corinne Wicks, uh, did casting, which was incredible. And we kept on putting it into the, uh, into the summit festival. We were, we keep on trying to mount <laughs> the pandemic keeps on ruining, uh, and, uh, the, the sleepover, which, uh, which Jansen Lalek and Jansen's got a team, uh, this time out and Jansen, uh, who also worked on the Bridgerton experience, uh, of late, which a lot of people are loving, uh, all of that, uh, all of that came out of the last one. So, uh, who knows what's going to come out of this one? It's fun. Okay. I've spent 10 minutes talking to you. That's more than enough. Most of you have tuned out. Let's do the end of the show. Okay. The associate, uh, the associate producer, the associate, the associate producer, the associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. Catherine Yu is the executive editor here at NoPro. The NoPro podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced, and mixed by yours truly. When did I write this? Uh, I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. 